This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. This episode of Vet Candy is brought to you by Alanco Animal Health, makers of ultraduramine vaccines. Welcome to Vet Candy's podcast and other news, a podcast to expand your idea of what is impacting the veterinary world, veterinarians, and all animal care professionals as humans. We are your co-hosts, Dr. Jen and Dr. Jason Chatfield. If you're not yet a Vet Candy subscriber, why not? Please subscribe for free today at myvetcandy.com. You can also reach me if you want to say something nice. Or Jason, if you don't, at Jen at MyVetCandy.com. <laughs> or Jason at MyVetCandy.com. Wonderful. Uh, and we do love to hear from our friends out in the Candyverse. So uh, our topic today is uh, its a little bit of a broad topic. I am so excited to talk to our guest about it. We rarely have guests who can talk about so many different things in such depth. But we're going to talk about barriers to veterinary care, barriers to access to veterinary care. Yeah. So in other nudes, all pets need our attention. Yeah. All pets. Yes. Like that, we never get to say all or none, do right. we? Never. It's, it's always like some of these and all except. And I nope. mean, we even, our clients don't get to say it, do they? Like the totally indoor cat. Have you ever seen that creature? Yes. No. I've heard no. about it. <laughs> Totally <laughs> Lots of times. It's a mythical creature, but I've it's heard It's a mythical it. creature. It's a, a phantom, creature. right? Totally endure, except for the one time. Except, except it's for always the, uh, the exception, yeah. right? So. Yeah, yeah. But, but today, we get to say the word all. All pets. All pets. All pets. So um, I'm going to bring in our guest. And news hounds, prepare yourselves, because we have an incredible guest today. We have with us Dr. Michael Blackwell. And currently, he's based in Tennessee. You're based in Tennessee, Dr. Blackwell? Yes, that's correct. Excellent. And, oh, in Knoxville. In Knoxville. And he is the director for the Program for Pet Health Equity at the Center for Behavioral Health Research at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. That's quite a title, sir. Well, it came with a lot of uh, sweat. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't come with glamour? <laughs> no, no glamour. And I'll go ahead and share with folks because we're going to get into a little bit of public health issues, I hope. My fingers are crossed because you also served as an assistant surgeon general in the U.S. Public Health Service. Yes? Yes, yes I did. Okay. Wow. I know the news hounds right now in the Candyverse have to be going nuts because I can't believe you're on our show. We get to talk about this incredible topic with you. So first of all, we're going to start slow. We're going to start slow, a little, little small, because you've had such a diverse career. So Jason and I both have very odd career paths, right? Very circuitous. I prefer the, I prefer the word different. I don't know anything about me as odd. I prefer different career paths. You right. may have had an odd career path. Mine was just different. Okay? Always the contrarian, my brother. But... Um, <clears throat> So can you share with us and our listeners a little bit about the path that brings you to us today? Sure. I, uh, like so many veterinarians, made a choice as a child. And the image that was in my mind about what I would be doing the rest of my life was uh, practicing clinical medicine. I grew up in a practice, so I had uh, a lot of uh, material to draw from went to veterinary school at Tuskegee University, and then oh, returned oh, to no. my home. I'm going to interrupt you for just a minute. We no, have some very good that. friends <laughs> from Tuskegee University. Okay, then. Yes, our listeners will know Dr. Courtney Campbell because he's part of our Vet Candy family and Dr. Jill Lopez, our CEO. So I'm starting to see like a little bit of an underground Tuskegee <laughs> theme happening. Get over the world. <laughs> Well, I'm going to have to talk to Jill and Courtney. They're not supposed to let the secret out that we're in the center of the universe, but uh, we'll come back to that another time. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So excuse the interruption, please, sir. Continue. Oh, certainly. So I uh, returned to my home state of Oklahoma and started a private practice, mixed practice, right out of veterinary school. But during that time, during the first three years there, I came to appreciate 
that I've been called to do more than I can do in my private practice. I didn't even know what that was. Long story short, it led me down a path of pursuing a master of public health degree. And there began my career in public health. Now, mind you, at the same time, I continued to practice. I did really while work pursuing for a while. Your and then, well, after the, the degree, I wow. continued to practice. Yeah. And wow. uh, but while working full time with the United States Public Health Service, I wow. uh, started a second practice in Maryland. So probably the definition of maniac, insane, <laughs> you know, really out there. What all the kids I now call the want... side hustle, right? Yeah. Is that what it is? Yeah. Well, your side is, hustle was, was working in it. practice. Yeah, man. What you were was, was way ahead of your time, my friend. That's right. That's right. Oh, it was really out there. <laughs> so I, uh, when I joined the U.S. Public Health Service, however, I actually thought I would be there temporarily, but it turned out into a 23-year career. I was uh, able to um, be promoted up in rank and um, positions, uh -huh. eventually being the uh, deputy director of the Center for Veterinary Medicine at the Food and Drug Administration, and then wow. ultimately the chief of staff for the Office of the Surgeon General of the United States. Wow. I have enjoyed my entire life and my career because the diversity in assignments has kept me fresh. It's certainly kept me growing. Mm -hmm. And it's kept me reminded of the fact that the world is really interesting. But also, <laughs> there's a lot to be done. <laughs> and you choose your you choose your poison, if you would, or you certainly should never feel stuck <laughs> in one place when you have a DVM degree. Yes. So, you know, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, we have a lot of issues facing the veterinary profession right now. And I would be curious to know, because one of the things that we're dealing with is mental health, et cetera. And um, a lot of uh, new graduates feel like that, you know, they get out in, in private practice and say, this is it. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and so there's, there's all these issues. And so it's wonderful to meet clearly a man after my own heart with a public health background and one embracing the side hustle before it was cool. Um, yeah. So what do you, what do you think is the biggest issue that's facing the veterinary profession today? Cause you've seen a lot of changes. So the biggest issue that concerns me the most about where the veterinary profession is today is that our industry, the veterinary service delivery industry, mm -hmm. which is largely a for-profit industry is really suited for the middle class. Mm -hmm. And yet our American society is made up of a spectrum of families, some of whom are at what we might call the lower end of the socioeconomic scale. Sure. They are the working poor. They are senior retirees. Mm -hmm. They are people with disabilities who cannot work. Some of these folks rely on public assistance, which I am happy to be in a nation that provides that and it yep. causes seizures when I see people trying to dismantle that. No, we have hardworking people, mm -hmm. but our industry is malpositioned at this time because what's happened with our middle class is, if anything, it's static, but we certainly have seen a growth in those that we would call the poor class, mm -hmm. below the middle class. And so I think we really need to start focusing on adjusting this service delivery model that we call private practice so that we are doing a better job of, of reaching a broader spectrum of our society. That's why we have a barrier to veterinary care today. Yeah. Uh, our national study performed out of the University of Tennessee found that 28% of respondents, these are families with pets, reported having a barrier to veterinary care in the past two years, and overwhelmingly the primary barrier is financial. Yeah, and I don't think, Jason, is that, does that shock you? It doesn't shock me, but I would also, I would also add that, it, as everybody knows in practice, that it doesn't, we have a big problem with society in general not wanting or, or not valuing the medicine that's, that's being given to their pets in general. So a lot of people, even if they can't afford it, simply don't want to afford it. And, right. And it's <laughs> So and it's not the same the, issue, right? But it's sort of right. it's sort of along the, along those lines. So yeah, yeah. yeah. May, may I just uh, may I just comment on that? Sure. So you just touched on what I believe is an important change relative to my cur uh, former comment, and that is this: as our middle class stagnated, and remember, the household income for middle class families has been pretty static uh -huh. since uh, 
since the 80s. When you adjust for inflation, these, these families, are, they have more total income, but it's the same income of years ago, yet everything else has gone up. Well, what veterinary medicine has been doing is uh, finding uh, multiple ways to, I'm just going to be blunt, sell something to the client. Mm-hmm. And consumers are smarter and smarter today because, frankly, the internet has helped that to happen. It's oh, God bless the internet. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we have more informed consumers. And yeah. uh, when they have limited income and we're trying to convince them to purchase something that doesn't quite translate as really critical, then they mm-hmm. start to uh, question a lot of the advice we're giving mm-hmm. them. So I think they're connected in a way. Yeah. That yeah, and and of course when the pharmacy issue came up and consumers yeah. want the option of low cost options, but oh, the veterinarian sure. is not offering that option and and charging a bit more. These mm-hmm. these are the things that are continuing to undermine mm-hmm. consumer confidence in the profession. But I, I think I think you're both right. So what's interesting? So because I was a practice owner and I never had a problem writing you a script for you to go fill it somewhere else calling it in somewhere because I would much prefer you spend your money on services, right? Like, so if I write you a script for an antibiotic that you can get for five bucks somewhere else where I have to charge you 35, well, let's take that $30 and run a CBC that is recommended that otherwise you couldn't do, right? And let's make sure that if you only have X amount of money and X amount pays for all the diagnostics that I'm recommending, and then you have none for treatment. Well, that's not worth anything. <laughs> so no. let's, what can we do for treatment if you only have X amount? You know, what can I, yeah. ha, let's spend it in the best interest of the pet. Because even if you have tons and tons and tons of money, you still have a finite amount. Right. Uh, yes, I appreciate hearing that. That's, uh, that's the philosophy that I practiced as well. But, you know, we, we did grow as an industry with yeah. the in-house prescription being one of the ways in which we took care of the overhead sure. uh, for the practice. So, But I think we are seeing a big shift. I think we're seeing a big yes. shift in that. And I think it's, it's tricky. And what I don't understand is why some of the veterinarians coming out of school in the last five or 10 years, you know, since that shift happened where kind of the big box stores recognized all of a sudden they had an opportunity with animal pharmaceuticals, why uh, veterinarians are not, I guess, coming out of school with that same perspective or at least recognizing the possibility because yeah, we're pricing I, ourselves I out of the market. I have an opinion about that. Yeah. I imagine there are multiple reasons why more recent graduates may not practice in the, in the way that you characterize your, your method. Having served as, as dean of the veterinary college at the University of Tennessee, I was able to look more carefully at what we were doing with academic veterinary medicine. What happened along the way since I left veterinary school is the implementation of practice management training in veterinary colleges. Mm-hmm. And if you sit through practice management courses, you don't hear a whole lot about what you just described necessarily. That is putting the money over here instead of over there. I guess you get a bit of that. But I guess what I left seeing and believing was there was a, a just a high dose of how many ways can we package up things in this practice so that it will generate revenue? And I understand that the, these are small businesses. They need to meet a bottom line. But then let's add to the fact that we have a bad model. I shouldn't say it that way. Veterinary medicine has duplicated resources in a community such that every practice has the same, pretty much the same set of uh, sure. capability, you know, same equipment. The same and so product. Forth. And then they give, it's the same yeah. product. Yeah, for sure. And so in a given community where there's a fixed amount of uh, money available for veterinary care, right. the prices and practices are high because you got to support that overhead. So, yeah. no, I think more recent graduates have been taught gold standard care. You have all of these, all this equipment and these diagnostic procedures to perform, but you got to meet the bottom line. And so at the end of the day, maybe not a lot of thinking about, well, how can I send somebody somewhere else to get a better deal, even with Mm -hmm. the prescription. I'm just guessing uh, that's uh, that's just my take on it. That makes perfect sense to me. (laughs) No data there. (laughs) No. So, Jason, so 
Dr. Jason, you graduated a little bit after I did. Correct. Um, did you did you have practice management courses or business or anything like that? We we didn't have anything like like uh, you were describing there. I think I think uh, we did have one elective course that was that met for thirty minutes. I think that basically said you guys need to understand some stuff and, and you know, half of you guys are going to go under cause you don't know what you're doing and you need to learn some business and make more money than you, than you spend. But that was pretty much it. It was basically, mm-hmm. Hey, beware that you're, you're somewhat of a business. We didn't have a lot of, um, a lot of how to, right. It was basically mm-hmm. hang the shingle out yes. and, and go to it. And I think that's part of, part of the issue. Um, of course, I'm glad to hear it change a little bit, but, but maybe it's gone too far. Right. And there's somewhere got to be somewhere in the middle where, where at the end of the day, we're there to treat the pets. Right, that's, that's right. Yeah. Need to do. But you also have to kind of open the doors. It's kind of a happy medium. And I think that maybe maybe what you're saying is it's gone too far over to the other side. Well, maybe. But you, you, have, to, uh, you have to provide a standard of care. And I've always right. thought as long as you're providing good care, the same to everyone, and then doing what the owners are able to do or what the owners choose to do, mm, you're probably going to come out okay. And don't give right. stuff away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. uh, but anyway, so so I want to transition. I want to talk about your program because yes. you're you're at University of Tennessee, and uh, actually we're going to take a quick break because not only do veterinary practices have to pay bills, we got to pay bills, and so <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to take a quick break. On the other side of this break, uh, we're going to hear about how Dr. Blackwell and his team are working to disrupt and change how veterinary care is delivered to the most vulnerable among us. So stay tuned, and we'll be right back with that. When it comes to vaccines, you have a choice. Keep it clean with Ultra Duramune. These highly purified half-milliliter vaccines are designed to minimize the reactions associated with unwanted proteins and reduce discomfort. Keep the good, clean fun going with Ultra Duramune. Learn more at elaineco.us. Oh, sure. It's all fun and games until someone ends up in a cone. That's right. We are animals. Deal with it. Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Okay, welcome back. Thanks for sticking with us uh, where we're having uh, what seems to be quite a heavy conversation. for Pretty heavy, but it's good stuff. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. Uh, and we're enjoying it, so we hope you are too. Our guest, uh, he hung around. He stuck with us through the break. Dr. Michael Blackwell is here with us. And he uh, now, as promised, I cannot wait to hear about this program at the University of Tennessee called Align. So, uh, Align Dr. Blackwell, Care. can you share Align with Care. us? Yeah. Align Care. Yes. Okay. Yes, it's Align Care, A L I G N care that's one word but the root word align is based on the principle that in the united states we have lots of resources we've got a lot of intelligent hard-working people Uh and uh yet they are not well aligned to address underserved families our program for pet health equity also emphasizes two things but first of all veterinary medicine animal welfare professionals should be reminded that the work we do is about families. Yes, we focus right. on, in this case, pets or the animals. But 88% of the families in America report that their pet is actually a family member. Sure. And so if I start to see my client and the patient that I'm trying to help as a social unit, as a, as a family, it may inform my decision-making. A social um, unit. So. <laughs> that is the phrase for the day. The pet is a social unit. That's awesome. Well, let me, ex- let me expand on that. Two-thirds okay. of households are comprised of that kind of social unit. We call them a bonded family. Okay. To, to be specific about the human-animal bond is what defines that social unit. Okay. Two-thirds of households in America have families with pets. That's more than twice the households with children. So in America, when we think family, we should see the image of abundant family. Now, the second point I want to make is our, our industry is built on equality. Equality is, says that everybody who walks through that front door, we're going to present the exact same fee schedule. 
And we're going to go through the process of treating everybody the same because people should be treated equally. We get that. Well, the reality is, as we already see quite well in human health care, is equal systems don't always uh, get you the best results. What we need is equitable or we need to have equity. What is equity? Equity accepts that people are not all the same as far as their capabilities, whether it's to communicate or whether it's to pay for medical care or veterinary care. Mm -hmm. And so we need a system in America that's built on equity more so than on equality if we're going to reach underserved families. So we're about the work of building such a healthcare system. Okay. So when we talk about equity, because I'm with you, I don't care what you look like when you come in, I'm looking at your pet, I make my recommendations. But then for me, the key difference is then the owner decides what we do. And one of those components in their decision, I would think has to be a financial piece, right? You know, what it costs. And so absolutely. And so with with the program there at Align Care, what are you guys doing to help address that lack of equity, as you say, that you see in the veterinary medical profession? Yes. So in an ideal world, every client has the financial means to pay for all that we believe should be done medically. Sure. That would include not only therapeutics, but diagnostics. Sure. And so forth. Okay. And we do have families in America who can do just that. Mm -hmm. When we start to look uh, more broadly at families that have limited financial means, then it becomes a question of what do we take off the table? Mm -hmm. Veterinarians are historically known to do that. We've always been presented with that, but it's not standardized. Mm -hmm. So we are advancing the idea of incremental veterinary care. It's quality care, but it's a tiered approach to patient management, meaning while I'd like to do all of these wonderful things that we've been trained and are capable of doing, the reality I'm faced with is there's limited revenue. The question of what can I do that will get the best results I can get, safeguarding quality of life in these circumstances. So we're advancing that. We're capturing in our study, we're capturing these decisions so that ultimately we can produce even a handbook that standardizes these decision makers. It doesn't tell the veterinarian what clinical decision to make, but how to work through the patient in order to do the best thing. I like to use the example of the vomiting canine. So gold standard <laughs> medicine says... He's uh, very high class. Jason, did you hear that? The vomiting canine? The vomiting canine. I got that. I was like, let me look that up. I, no I mean, right. we just call that the puking dog. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> He's so high class, this yeah, guy. Yeah, you you guys, all right? We got to... I know. Just like Courtney Campbell, right? Oh. I love it. Okay, go ahead, Dr. Blackwell. Right, let's go back to the so, vomiting So this... This dog vomited twice yesterday. The client is uh, in today for the dog to be seen because of concerns. Now, the history says uh, the dog was doing fine uh, this morning, even ate breakfast. Examination, nothing remarkable. Uh Not sensitive in the abdomen, alert, so on and so forth. Gold standard medicine says, you know, this could be the beginning of an infection or some organ failure or change, and we should do blood work. Just or a foreign sure. body. Or... And there could be a foreign body. <laughs> right. And so we can do a survey radiograph. Right. It's I all mean... good medicine. And it, it adds to our bottom line in our practice. But when you have a client who can't pay for such things, we make decisions to as simple as, well, let's just watch her and see if she's doing okay tomorrow. It's probably nothing because 80% of the time, whatever the number is, it's high. It's a self-limiting situation. It's just a symptom, upset stomach. So... I guess what I'm saying then is we learn to forego diagnostics in a standardized way so that we can still practice quality medicine, evidence-based medicine, but not add to the cost to the client. Because when we add to those costs, we literally fail in our service to the community. Mm-hmm. Working in the sheltering world, in the shelters, I can't tell you how many times we had clients show up begging for help. And the story is very similar. They went to Dr. So-and-so and... They ran all these tests. We told them we didn't have but three hundred dollars, and by the they time spent they spent all three hundred dollars on tests, we had no more. Yes, and now they're there asking us for help to treat. So we really can do better in serving our communities than than that. 
but we need to standardize the decisions to get consistency and to ensure quality care. That's what equity looks like. Mm -hmm. The person who can afford all the wonderful things, great. But for those who can't, there is still an option for them. Now, with Align Care and what you're talking about is with that approach, I'm curious, like if we talk about the puke and dog, would you recommend, would you guys with your program, would you recommend in that structure that you would offer to do the x-ray, to do some blood work, to do a fecal or what have you to the client? And then your recommendation would be, we could wait, but would you offer it? Or would you make the decision before you went back in the exam room to recommend just waiting? Yes. Okay. So two things. First of all, I want to say that we don't prescribe anything. We don't tell veterinarians what decisions they should be making. No one should be doing that, getting between the doctor and his or her patient. Sure. What Align Care is, is a structured healthcare system that subsidized healthcare. What we're trying to do is better align our resources in this country, our capabilities, so that we do a better job of reaching underserved families. Now, mm-hmm. that means then families have to be enrolled in the healthcare system. Oh, okay. And to be enrolled, you have to be qualified. And to be qualified, you have demonstrated need. Means and I testing. think veterinarians it's- get that. Yes, it's, it's, it's commonly referred to as means testing. Sure. At this point, we are only enrolling families that are on public assistance already. Mm-hmm. Now, there are middle-class families that don't qualify for public assistance but still need help. That's work sure. we'll get to. Yeah. We started with those on public assistance because the problem is most severe there. Yeah. And just to clarify, we're talking about people who still work. Veterinarians may not realize this, but there are a lot of people who work for veterinarians or in shelters. They work on behalf of the animals, but the wages are at a level that it's not a living wage and they need help, and including like food stamps or Mm -hmm. something. Well, these are working poor, we would call them, or Mm -hmm. people who work and contribute to others, but they just need assistance. So we're starting there. That's the way you're enrolled. And that enrollment is through an enrolled social service agency in the community. We also have enrolled veterinary practices. These practices have agreed to provide services to enrolled aligned care families Uh on our policies. So, for example, in practicing incremental veterinary care and understand they're getting paid a copay by the family and then Mm -hmm. a third party aligned care pays a subsidy. It's uh, not all practices want to do that kind of thing. They so, want but, that client to pay yeah, everything up front. Right. But you're not you're not asking the veterinarians to provide care for free no. at that point then. Absolutely not. That is a that's a non starter. And this right. is where the animal welfare community has gone uh, wrong. Yeah. They are asking veterinarians to donate time to yes. show up at the park to right. And, you know, that is, first of all, is just not respecting who we are and our training and the fact we have to maintain a license and so forth. And so, I have to eat. Yes, this, <laughs> this, yes, yes. And then when you couple that with education debt, the mm-hmm. more recent graduates are carrying, mm-hmm. no, we, we can't go out and do free things. So, no, it's subsidized care. Now, to be, to be frank, In a given community, there are practices whose business model would not make them suitable providers in the aligned care system because they are upper end, they're high end, Mm -hmm. and they have to maintain all of those CT scan (laughs) 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 equipment. Right. Uh, You understand what I'm saying? Endoscopy, right? Endoscopy. Yes. Yes. Specialty levels. So what we're really talking about are general practice models yeah. uh, where you are set up to provide primary care and mm-hmm. some secondary care, but not specialty care. And frankly, if, if you just look at that spectrum, uh, 80% of what's going to happen in the life of uh, an individual falls within general practice of medicine. Sure does not require specialty care, advanced yeah. medical care. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there was one thing also, or a couple things actually, that kind of stood out to me in the, the incredible uh, report that you guys had, the access to veterinary care. One was the fact that it seemed like there was an inverse correlation to the socioeconomic status of the family and the number of pets they had right? So people who had less means seem to have more total pets in the home than people with 
better means. And I, I thought that was interesting. Well, there needs to be additional work to understand societal behaviors in yeah. general, but even specific to that. We can start here, though, especially down south where I live. Mm-hmm. When you have limited means, the probability of spay and neuter is definitely going to go down because you don't have the money to go get them spayed and neutered. And if you're in a community that doesn't have these free services, the low-cost services, then they don't get spayed and neutered. And then we know nature takes care of the rest of that picture. So were we those, also, are those pets uh, in those homes, the multiple pets? And you, I don't know if you guys drilled down to that detail, but were they related to each other then? or Don't know that. We did not okay. d- drill down to that level. But that would be an example of, an area of interesting research, you know. Well, what, yeah, because then we can what, see if spay neuter is really having an impact, or if it's if it's not, or you know, that's sort right. Of thing. I will say, working again in the Knoxville community and mm-hmm. what I've come to learn from other communities, no. And when you go to low-income zip codes, you see a higher population of chameleon animals. That's almost in any zip code that's low-income. Interesting. And those who work in those communities believe that it is tied to lack of spaying and neutering. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're more likely to be strays, especially down south. Now, this may not mm-hmm. be so much the case up north, mm-hmm. but much of this country, you, you're more likely to see outside individuals living outside. Right. So these programs start to target those zip codes because that's where the need is greatest. This sure. is a back to the whole equality versus equity, equity. thing. Yeah. Build a program based on equity, the need is greater there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here's another interesting area uh, needing additional research, and that is when you go down the socioeconomic scale and you look 360 degrees around that individual at what brings joy to them in their lives, you see fewer and fewer of those things as you go down the scale. Yeah. You don't certainly see sports cars out in the driveway, no. <laughs> and you may not see uh, even a computer at some point, you right. know. Well, pets bring joy, yes. bring comfort, bring a whole host of benefits to the humans and their, that live with them. And we believe that that's a big part of it, that mm-hmm. that joy, that love, when you feel unloved because you've been left behind in society, that dog will never look at you and say, you know what, you're unloved and have been left behind in society. Yes. No, that dog is going to tell you every day, I love you very much, and I don't care what we have or don't have. We're doing great. And we're in it together. And we're in it together, yes. Mm -hmm. So these kind of dynamics we need to understand about bonded families. What's going on in a bonded family that Mm -hmm. pops out is this kind of data, these kinds Mm -hmm. of, uh, of images. I think the takeaway, though, is let's not call it irresponsibility. Because our national study found more than half of the pets acquired were through non-purposeful means. The family didn't go and buy the pet at a pet store or breeder. They didn't even go to the shelter and adopt. But uh, it it was a hand-me-down. Yeah, showed up. I mean, Mm -hmm. a gift, just Mm -hmm. many other reasons. And Jason, I feel like you had a question about the bonded family. Well, I had a question a while back, but you guys are so interesting. I've totally forgotten my question that I was going to ask. <laughs> you guys carry on. As, as per the norm, I'm being educated in all things uh, during uh, my own podcast. So it's, yeah. it's good stuff. But I, I will look back. At, I'm scribbling in some notes like crazy. And I'll look back and see if I can. I, can, I, did, ha- I did have a question, but we'll get to it towards the end. Uh, okay. I'm, pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that, uh, uh, that you guys answered it already. So carry on with this discussion uh, about the bonded family and the human human pet bond. It's it's quite fascinating from this perspective. And I'm also trying to scroll down and read this this fantastic study you guys did. There is a lot of data in there, my friend. Lots of data. Well, we appreciate that, and uh, I'm sure some of your listeners uh, may also have questions. And I mm-hmm. encourage you to go to our our website. There yep. you will find our report and lots of other information. That mm-hmm. website is p p h e dot utk dot edu ppha dot utk dot edu and if you're driving as many of our listeners do like news hounds will listen to our podcast on the way to work in their commute or on the way home don't run off the road we're going to put the link on the episode notes so, so remain It'll calm magically appear somewhere on there but, and uh, stay on the road folks okay mm-hmm. so uh this of course 
this is why uh, our CEO for Vet Candy folks uh, put us in touch with this incredible, incredible veterinarian here, because this is near and dear to my heart because of public health. And public health infrastructure in this country is so significant, but unfortunately, it's not as visible as, <laughs> as I think it should be because people forget that it's there until it's gone, <laughs> until it's gone, yes. and then people realize it. And so the, the least among us have pets. And I find it incredible. I was sitting in a meeting talking about development of a program to provide um, zoonotic disease prevention uh, to companion animals of the homeless and indigent and underserved in my county. And the director of the public health department at our county, who's no longer there, he was a physician. He's no he still is a physician, but he's no longer in that role. He he said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, everybody. Dr. Chatfield these people are homeless. They don't have anything. They don't have a pet. And I thought, wow, let me back up a couple of centuries to (laughs) to have this conversation. Because for many Mm -hmm. folks who've fallen on a a hard financial time, the only thing tying them to society is the fact that they have that pet. The thing that's providing them a little, little bit of stability while they move through this difficult time in their lives is that pet. And yeah. so, uh, so I think as veterinarians, we, we do need to provide um, some access to, the, to care for those folks. And, yes. and I, what I thought was also interesting in reading up on your program, yes, news hounds, we research before we do our podcasts, well, is that you're not just talking about that preventive care that people need access to. You're talking about kind of that gap between preventive care and euthanasia, which is... Yes. My dog's puking for a day or two. Yeah. Or, you know, or or he's flopping his head and his ears all puffed up like a pillow. What do we do with that? You know, it's that gap in the middle that's urgent or time sensitive, not necessarily emergency, but urgent and sick. And that's what I found pretty incredible about what your program is looking to do. Yes. When we talk about malalignment in the Mm -hmm. nation, we can look across the country and we see numerous spay-neuter programs, low-cost spay-neuter programs, right. uh, nonprofits that are providing that initial wellness and preventive care. And those mm-hmm. programs are contributing tremendously. Mm-hmm. The crisis doesn't happen when you're lacking wellness and preventive care. Right. The crisis happens when your pet, your family member is sick yes. or has been injured and you need help now. Yeah. So while we embrace these programs, the gap was what happens when medical care is actually really needed now. And, yep. uh, of course, uh, we've had programs where you could get it, but you got to apply for a grant and so forth. That uh, delay in time is costly. And so Align Care is intended by having pre-enrolled participants. Uh-huh. We can respond or the system allows a more mm-hmm. quicker response. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to the public health one, though, because this is very troubling for me. What's troubling is that some of our colleagues have not thought about this as much as I think they need to, and this mm-hmm. is based on our national study. We are still as much a public health profession as we are a medical profession. Oh, Why public indeed health? we are. Because public, public health is about preventing and mitigating problems. What are the problems we're mitigating? Well, 65% of infections in humans are zoonotic. And frankly, most of those don't come from pets. Right. In fact, most often humans are effect- infected through the food supply. But pets do represent a source of problems for humans. I met a, an optometrist who practices in southern Florida, low-income oh. community. Yes. Every year, he's seeing more and more children with the toxic care larva in their yep. retinas. Yep. Absolutely. We don't, as a nation, we're not even measuring how many of these kids that have uh, learning challenges mm-hmm. are actually carrying the lava in their brain. I mean, right. it's not something we look for, but we do know that visceral larva migrants can, can cause learning difficulties. Toxoplasmosis. Now, I mentioned that because, yes, yes, now I mentioned toxicara because it's the I most know. common That's intestinal correct. parasite in dogs and cats, and yep. we know that humans can be impacted. Yep. But with the climate change that's underway, when we see uh, an increase in the average global temperature, we're going to see new infections in communities. Yep. This is what happens. The vectors are migrating. You've been reading about the ticks, mm-hmm. tick population increasing. Mm-hmm. As these winters shift to maybe less severe, we can expect certain uh, microbes to persist mm-hmm. in the environment 
at higher levels. So again, when we think of zoonoses, when we think of the fact that we uh, are living at a time when even climate is contributing to the likelihood of newly emerging diseases or re-emerging diseases like lepto and some others, this is not the time for the profession not to be available to everybody. That's right. Because we either pass laws in the nation that deny companionship with pets below a certain income level, and that's not going to happen. We either go in and round nor, them all nor up. Nor is that truly appropriate. I don't think we no, need to legislate that. We got it's bigger issues happen. to legislate. <laughs> yeah, it shouldn't happen. You know, we don't ever want to be in a country where the law determines who you can be in a relationship with. That's These right. These are special relationships. <laughs> yes. And so because they're there and they're going to be there, yes, we've got to figure out how to better reach these underserved families. It's mm-hmm. for not only their sake, but the sake of the community mm-hmm. because we need to control zoonotic diseases. It's an overall burden on the healthcare system when those folks without means who are in general more susceptible to uh, contracting an infectious disease bingo that we need to address that and and as a veterinarian what more important role do i have than providing information and recommendations and service to allow that person to live safely with the animal they love like like yes. what more important purpose do we have for getting all these letters after our name <laughs> Yes. And that's uh, something I, I've mentioned before. When I think of being a service profession, yeah, it's not service profession when it's not a burden. Right. Service profession when it all falls into place. No, it's service profession. And what comes with that in the society that we're serving is a whole spectrum of challenges. Mm-hmm. But we can rise to the occasion and address these challenges better than we are today. And that's what the Aligned Care healthcare system is intended to be, one part of doing a better job of reaching these underserved families. Is the Aligned Care only available to pet owners and veterinary practices in Tennessee? Are you guys nationwide or what's the setup currently? Because you're fairly new. So we're, nation, we're nationwide and yes, it's fairly new, but even more important, We are still in the research and development phase. Uh We literally have entered stage two where we're doing the demonstration project, a proof of concept. We've selected eight to 10 communities where we're implementing the line care. Uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, Asheville, North Carolina, Phoenix, Arizona, Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina, Buffalo, New York, Pomona, California, Denver, Colorado, and and some others. Mm -hmm. And so at this stage, we are putting in place the components of the system. And those communities are working with us to demonstrate the effectiveness of such a healthcare system. Clearly, that means we have to measure. We've got to collect data. Of course. Not only on who who served and what the benefits were that came out of that, Mm -hmm. but those decisions that the practices make called incremental veterinary care. What did that cost? And, uh, of course, the intent is uh, to do this through June of next year, at -hmm. which time we will want to scale up to other communities across the country. We've also been contacted by both Canada and the U.K., so it's it's already gotten a little beyond our borders uh, as far as interest. (laughs) As you should, because it it, it makes sense from from, from a lot of perspectives. It's not like... To be honest, when I when I first read about it, I'm like, oh, okay. So we're going to provide another organization asking for free for free vet care, which is which I agree with you 100. It's completely opposite yep. uh, and counterintuitive to success. This is just kind of merging some things and kind of helping other people with through a third party, and that's very different. That's a very different concept than we've yes. had in the past. Yeah, and you're so not asking be, the veterinarian to lose. Request, so. Yeah. yeah. So the healthcare system that supports families was built when families were defined as a social unit of two or more humans. Right. Well, American society today, <laughs> family is bonded family. So our mm-hmm. healthcare system has to be adjusted both on the human side and the veterinary side in keeping with where families are today. So the social service agencies that are working with us, they get it. They know yeah. that they can't do their mission mm-hmm. when the pet issues start to interfere with their ability to reach there. Oh, yeah. There are people who are unsheltered who will not go into a shelter because there's not an option for their non-human member. Oh, so yeah. they stay on the street. Yeah. So, yes, this is, uh, this is what it means to serve society, to take a careful look at who our society is today 
and ask ourselves, well, now, where is my role? How can I actually support our society to get better outcomes? But I think it's important for... But it needs um, to be structured. Oh, it's got to be structured. Let me just say, it needs to be structured Mm -hmm. because waste, fraud, gaps, duplication, all of those things start to happen if you don't structure it. Well, even if you do structure it, you might have it creep in, but you won't have it at the level of a, if it's unstructured. But I also think what's, what's a critically important for everyone who's listening now to recognize is that if you are an owner or if you are a veterinarian or if you are um, a veterinary technician providing support to the veterinarian, just because the owner doesn't elect to do all of the diagnostics or just because the owner doesn't elect to do everything does not make them a bad owner. doesn't mean they love their pet any less than any other person because as soon as they come through the door of the veterinary practice, they're a good owner because they didn't have to come, right? That is so powerful. That is so powerful. We often remind our colleagues to suspend with judgment because, you know, we've all seen that patient that we wish had been presented a week ago. Okay. And now the situation is much worse. And yes, it may be easy to look across that table and think uh, this person was being irresponsible. What I understand is that some people, when a problem shows up, they hope and pray that it's going to go away because they don't have the money to go pay a veterinarian. And they wait and it's getting worse. And now they're there. So yes, let's measure the fact that they're there. That, That tells you how responsible they are being. There may be other reasons it took them so long to get there. That's right. You don't know what was going on in their life. Yes. Those five days before. Um, they may have been trying to find the money. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. we, we just should suspend with judging. Yeah. And, and, uh, and that's, that's what I, um, I frequently tell new graduates. I, I say, gosh, did they start issuing robes when we graduated? Are y'all judges now? Yeah. You know, because it's just, it's uh, yeah, it's, I, I mean, they didn't I give like me, that. they didn't give me a set of robes and a gavel when I graduated. So, <laughs> uh, Jason, did you get one? Did you get a uh, set? I most certainly did not. No. Right. And so uh, as soon as you come through the door, you're good, a good owner. Now we may disagree on what we're going to do to move forward, but it doesn't mean that either one of us is doing it for the wrong reason. So, uh, yeah. yeah, so this, this has been um, an incredible discussion. And I could go on probably for several hours because I've now drug out my soapbox. Um, <laughs> but I think, I think, Dr. Blackwell, you and I stand on the same soapbox <laughs> most days. Um, Sounds like it, yes. Yes. And Jason, there's room for you. Oh, good. I'll join. Yes. <laughs> we can't do it without you, Jason. So come on up. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. So um, is there anything else that you think that or you wish that a veterinarian listening right now who's going to go to practice, go into an exam room, any one thing that you wish that they were aware of? I would like my colleagues to really believe that we can do better. They can do better in their own uh, local situation or practice, but certainly collectively as a profession, we can and we must. Because if we fail to reach a large sector of our society, which is the current situation, it's a national security problem. We're all going to be harmed by those conditions, and we have no choice but to do better. And if we also embrace the principle of safeguarding quality of life as opposed to curing all evils in the world, let's safeguard quality of life where it exists. Mm -hmm. And where it exists has limitations. But within mm-hmm. those limitations, there are things we can do to safeguard quality of life. Mm-hmm. Of course, what a Lion Care does is when that end-of-life decision needs to be made, our families are connected with social workers, with mm-hmm. counselors, coaches, people who wow. will help them through that. They sign an advanced directive. So while they're not in crisis, mm-hmm. they make decisions about end-of-life mm-hmm. so that it's a smoother process. This is what a system would look like and mm-hmm. operate like. And it offloads on the veterinarians that load of trying to counsel people, hold hands, get well out, outside of our training when we're dealing with humans who are emotional because the family member is ill or dying. We're not trained to do that. We need to partner with other professionals mm-hmm. in order to help our clients in that realm. Oh, my goodness. It sounds like such a, a piece of that program might be able to make a dent in this mental health catastrophe 
that's going on in the profession too because of that um, I believe it will that emotional burden that so many so many practitioners bear just for the reason that you said that even if we can diagnose it it doesn't necessarily mean the right thing is to fix it it's it it's depends on that family's right. estimation of quality of life that's and what right. they want to do it's for the their context. family member Mm-hmm. Yep. And when we drill down and just take a look at what that looks like, the person across the table is in crisis. They're panicked. Their mm-hmm. loved one is ill and needs help. And you are messaging to them, it's too bad. We can't help you because you can't pay for it. Now, that's because we've presented the fees and they can't afford it. Well, what do people sometimes do? They yell at the veterinarian as not caring. If you cared about animals, you would do something. In other words, it's not the person trying to be mean. It's that they're in crisis. And when humans go into crisis, we say all kinds of things we shouldn't say. Oh my goodness. But the recipient of that is harmed by it, is traumatized Mm -hmm. by it. And then what do we do with it? Well, unfortunately, we're doing nothing with it. We're burying that and it's it's going to sprout. You can't bury that kind of interaction mm-hmm. repeatedly and it not pop up at some point. So, oh, exactly. yes, I think there is a connection with our, our mental, emotional health and this uh, terrible suicide rate that we're experiencing. Mm-hmm. We can build a system where we do better than that, but we can't be all things to all people. That world has long gone. That's right. That's right. We will be an epic failure. So don't try it. Don't try it, folks. Yes. You heard it here first on In Other News. You can't be all things to all people. <laughs> that's right. I think that's, a, I think that's a whole other discussion because I don't think that that world has gone away completely. I, I think, think people are trying to do it. Oh. To do that, and everyone kind of expects it. But again, we'll be here for six hours talking about that. So, that's right. Um, that's right. You know, it's all, they're all interconnected, right? So They are. Yes, all of those are. things. All of those things, as is our community. So, so um, this has been just a fantastic discussion, Dr. Blackwell. We so much appreciate you bringing your wealth of knowledge and perspective um, to share with our listeners. And uh, folks, we're going to uh, have the Align Care um, website up uh, in the episode notes for you. So look for it there. If you can't find it, email Jason at <laughs> Jason at myvetcandy.com. I, um, I got you back. That's right. And veterinarians, if you're interested in getting involved with Align Care, you can either reach out to us at Vet Candy and we will pass that information on, or I'm certain that there's going to be a contact us link on the Align Care website. (laughs) And and you can definitely get involved. So um, what a wonderfully uplifting topic today. I hope uh, for you news hounds in the Candyverse that you feel um, encouraged after this discussion. And uh, we want to thank our guest. Thank you so much, Dr. Blackwell. Yes. Thank you for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yep. And, uh, and I hope, I hope we'll have you on again um, after you get some data from your demo project, because I'm interested. Well, we would love to share our findings uh, because this is a community-based initiative. So we, we want everybody to know of what we've learned. And so you'll be hearing from us. Wonderful. Wonderful. So uh, you heard it here. He's now committed. He cannot get out of it. And uh, Dr. Black will be back with us um, on another episode when they get some more numbers and we'll, we'll talk about that and how to move forward. So thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you on the next episode of In Other News. Let's Talk Pets every week on demand only on PetLifeRadio.com.